This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. We're going to continue, as I said earlier, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1. So go ahead and go there while I get ready here. Well, as I mentioned, we will be in Luke's Gospel for a long time. One of the, re- in, the in chapter one for a long time, even. And I, one of the reasons is because it's 80 verses. I don't know if you've noticed that, but chapter one's 80 verses. And so there's a lot of important historical information as we continue our investigative research of this man who is God. And so uh, let's just begin by reading this entire section this morning from Luke chapter one. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 39, and we'll go through verse 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that... the mother of my Lord should come to me. See, Elizabeth knew that the baby inside of Mary was going to be the Messiah. She knew that because she was carrying the one that Isaiah, that Malachi prophesied would, would lead the way. And therefore, she was a little bit further along in her pregnancy so that John the baptizer could get out there and get, get rolling with the announcement of Jesus. For behold, she says in verse 44, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, and if you notice, this is um, in in stanza form here in your Bible. It's actually, it's, it's written a little differently. It's not in paragraph form. It's in stanza form, line by line, and that's because this has been interpreted as a song that Mary, uh, that Mary sings. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then it says, and Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, for about three months, and then returned to her home. So let's let's pray again here, just just to, to ask the Holy Spirit to come and teach us. Father, we ask that our time right now would be pleasing to you, that it would be helpful to us. And God, I thank you 
for this amazing story that, that, that we're getting ready to, to look at even more here in, in even greater depth, this true story of this wonderful sister of ours in Christ, this young woman, Mary. And I pray that as we examine her life and her relationship with you, and particularly today, her response to you and her enjoyment of you, we, we invite you, Father, to send us the Holy Spirit, that he might give to us the same kind of faith that she had, that he might give to us the same kind of relationship that she had with you, and, and that we might have the same kind of worship that she demonstrated, that we would give ourselves to the service of her son, the Lord Jesus, just as she did. And we ask for all this in the grace of Jesus and his good name. Amen. Well, today, um, as I mentioned, we're going to get to know this, this, this young woman again a little more in depth, all right? This, the, the woman that we went to into great detail last week about uh, Mary, quite simply, she is a woman who lives her life in relationship with God. It's one of the best ways to describe her, and as a result, I think she provides for us a great example, and so I don't want to gloss over her. I want to give her two entire weeks, because this, this song that she wrote that we have sung that we have just read is an incredible song, and I think you'll see that as we go through it today. But I'd like to preface everything that I want to say later in this message with, with in sort of overview it by saying this, that there are really two different ways for you to live your life. For everybody in the world, there are really two different ways that people live their life. One is that you start your life in your experience uh, you, you start with your life, you start with your experience, you start with your perspective of things, and then you project that onto God. And we'll just be honest, that's the way that most people in the world, most people in our culture in particular, live their life. That's how they view God. Either they believe Him or they, or they don't, depending on what it is that they project onto Him of their view of who God is. They define who God is by themselves. And I call that a bottom-up approach. And this is the approach that, that you got to be careful with because it's easy to get sucked into this approach. It's basically a worldview that sees your life and your experiences as ultimate reality. And then you interpret God and who God is from your own perspective. This is why people have a difficult time seeing God as good when bad things are happening. And that's one of the problems, is one of the results of this kind of worldview is that when things are good, you do feel like God's a good God, and He's close to you, and He loves you, and He, he really cares about you. But then when things get hard, you start to wonder, well, is there really a God at all? Does he, and if there is a God, does He really care? Maybe God's really far away. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe He's just not interested in my life. Or maybe He's an impersonal force, like not a person, but maybe He's just this force in the world, like a lot of people want to teach in modern in modern. Uh, um, uh, weird theologies called process theologies, that there's this force who's like God, but we can't really have a relationship with God. Or maybe you have a more of an Eastern yin and yang view of God, that he's both good and evil, or, or uh, some sort of aberration, um, it's, you know, other aberration to Christian theology, like I mentioned, the process theology, that maybe, he, maybe there is a God, maybe he's a force that's good, but he's, he's powerless, and he, he wants to help me but, and he wants to help me do good, but, but there really isn't much he can do. Are we having issues? Okay. To pull that out and then put that back in. Hopefully that will reset it. <laughs> 
one's letting us know. All right. We'll find out. I, I'm talking. Hello, hello, hello. Check, check one, two. All right, good deal. All right. That was just a... See, that, that's what you run into when you're doing all this uh, technology stuff. Technology still cannot replace... Are people texting me too? Yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> all right, I'm going to call you out here. So, no, I won't do that. <laughs> So the result is when you start from the bottoms, bottom up approach, you begin with your feelings. You begin with your experiences. You begin with your, your sin, even, and your sadness and your suffering, and you project all of that toward God. And the result is that when you need him the most, you actually will run from him rather than to him. And you'll, you'll have more questions for him rather than worship him and trust him. And, and that's always going to put you in a difficult place if that's the perspective that you have, that you, that you impose upon God. And some of you may even be there today. Maybe you've gone there over the past several months at one point or another. You know, the, that you, you know, the only thing that we're certain of right now is that our future is uncertain, right? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen next? How is this all going to work out? When's this all going to be over? Life has just gotten really complicated, and you feel helpless, and, that's the, and that's, that's, it, there's no place to go if that's the perspective that we have of God. But thankfully, the other approach, the other way to live is what we'll call the top-down approach, and that is to assume that God is who He says He is. That God is the God of the Bible as He describes Himself in the Bible, that the Bible is true, and that it truly does reveal to us the character and the nature, what we're going to call the attributes of God. And a top-down worldview is believing that and then interpreting all of life in light of what God says and who God says He is. That's the way that God desires for us, all of us, every person that's ever been created, to interpret life. That's the approach that we take. When we go to Scripture, we realize God is good. Good begins with God. We realize that He made the world good. We've corrupted it through sin. The sin and the suffering and the, and the sadness that is experienced in this world and this life is not because of God. It's because of us. It's because of Satan and sin and demons and sinners all working together to war against God because God is the one who is good, altogether good, always good, only good, and God has a plan all the time that he's working out and unfolding through history to be our redeemer and liberator and deliverer and savior. And so what happens is when we're suffering or when we're sinning or when we're anxious or when we're frustrated or when we're discouraged, we trust in God. We run to God. We, we worship God. And so what God often does in scripture is he gives us examples of both ways of living. He'll give us people who serve as examples of these two ways of living. Some of them are very negative examples, and they respond in ways that are deplorable, and their lives are then a, a, a legacy of suffering, and God gives them to us, I believe, in the, in the Scripture as warnings. He tells us, you know, look, these are the way people respond when their perspective of me is very small. Their perspective of me is, de is dependent upon their own experiences. And then other people, like Mary, respond in faith. Other people like Mary who experience the same hardships, the same kinds of anxieties, the same kinds of stress, the same kinds of doubts, the same kinds of abuse 
verbal abuse that she experienced from other people, they trust him. They trust in his word. They trust in his character. They trust in his promises, particularly in their most difficult of circumstances. And they are for us wonderful examples of, of the way we should respond. And as I mentioned, and as you can expect, we're going to talk about her today. One of the most paramount examples that Scripture gives us is this woman named Mary. And we, we, we went to in, into great detail last week in, of, about Mary, the story of her that actually began in the Old Testament all the way back in Genesis and then in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, hundreds of years before she was ever born, there was a specific prophecy where Isaiah the prophet said that the Holy Spirit would, would, would conceive in a virgin, a young unmarried virgin woman would give birth to a son and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the rescue mission is that God would enter into human history, that the creator would enter into creation, that God would become a person to identify with us and to be that mediator, that reconciler that we need to reconnect us back to God, that he would be fully God and fully man and really difficult to understand and comprehend how that would happen. But he, in order to do that, he would, in order to be able to mediate, that's, that would be the truth of who he is. He's still God, but he was fully man. And he'd be able to mediate and reconcile men and women to God. And hundreds of years had passed after Isaiah said that this was going to happen. Everyone was wondering, where is this man? You know, when's he going to come? Who's the virgin woman? Who's going to be the one? And then Gabriel, the angel, then shows up to this young woman named Mary. And I unfolded that story last week. I'm not going to go back into that again. If you want to hear that and you didn't hear it, then you can go back and listen to it on our podcast or on our Facebook feed where these videos are. Well, not only does Mary tell, uh, or does the angel tell Mary that she, as a virgin, will be the one to bear the child who will be the Messiah, she's also told in that interaction with Gabriel that her relative, an, an older barren woman named Elizabeth, who has never had children and is beyond childbearing years, has also been blessed by God, and that God has opened her womb, and she will give birth to who will be John the baptizer. And so in hearing of this, after she hears of her news and then hearing of the news of her cousin, Mary is so excited that she packs up her things and she takes this trip, this roughly 100-mile hike through the wilderness into the Judean hillside to go to the home of Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, who we know is mute. And so it's a nice visit between Mary and, Zach and, uh, and Elizabeth during that time. And she spends three months there. And so what we read of the time that she spent there in verses 39 through uh, 45, and that's going to be, we're, gonna, we're actually going to pick up this, the, the majority of the story in verse 46. And the reason why we're going to pick it up there is because we know that, you know, this little interaction Mary has, but I really want to spend some time in this song. Because one of the things that Mary does is while she's down there visiting Elizabeth in Judea, she writes this worship song for us. And one of the things I want to say here first is, is you're going to see Mary in a circumstance. We see her right now in this circumstance where she has opportunity to worry. <laughs> she has, if anyone has opportunity to worry, this young woman has much to worry about. For those of you who worry well, like it's your spiritual gift, right? You're good at worrying. Maybe, you know, maybe... Uh, you've come to the point in your life where there's just a lot to be worried about today, right? 
Worried about your health? Worried about finances? Worried about relationships, mental health, broken relationships that have, that have occurred? Worried about your children? Worried about grandchildren? Worried about future? Worried about your own security? There's a lot of worrying going around right now, isn't there? A lot to be concerned about. Well, Mary is in that season of her life. Mary has a lot to worry about. And the scriptures that we read today, the scripture that we look at today in depth is recording the season in her life where she was away from home and, and she, was there, she was gone for about three months. And while she was there in this, in, in this different place, she didn't know what she was going to return to. When she went back home, three months later, she didn't know, like, would Joseph really want to marry her when she gets back home? Uh, after all, I mean, she said she was a virgin, but how would he believe it? She gets back after three months, she's going to start to show. Would he marry her and then quit on her when things got tough? Would he divorce her and leave her and abandon her as a single mother? I mean, what about her reputation? I mean, she know, we know later we, from Jesus' life that she was called names. She was called a whore and a harlot and a tramp. She told everyone, I, you know, I, 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 I can imagine Mary telling everyone, I, look, I love God. This is a miracle. God made me pregnant. They all probably laughed and made fun of her. I mean, we know they came to Jesus later during his adult life, and they said, at least we know who our father is, which is another way for them saying, in essence, that your mother's a whore. So not to mention the, you know, not to mention the, uh, just the normal concerns for pregnancy, let alone all this other stress. I mean, I'm guessing many of you mothers could attest just being pregnant alone is probably enough to worry about, I would guess. In a small town, with, without great medical care, plus you're poor, I mean, it's dangerous. A lot of women in that day died in, died in childbirth. Um, a lot of children died in infancy. In, a, in addition to that, in addition to all this, what about her own health and well-being? I mean, her own safety. In that day, as I mentioned last week, culture was much different. If they believed that she had committed adultery, there could possibly be a, a time when they would take her out and, and, and present great abuse toward her, make an example of her for other women to not sin in that same way. I mean, what, what, about, Mar- I mean, what about Mary's family? I mean, think through this. Her family, would, you know, she's got to be wondering, is my family going to reject me? Will they stay with me? Would they believe that God is really using her? I mean, she believes it, but would they believe it? And, you know, not to mention the pressure of just being the mother of God. <laughs> you know, what a way to start. I mean, that in and of itself for a junior high age girl, that's a lot of pressure. She's a first time mom, you know, raising God. I mean, it, it sounds like a Netflix series or something, right? I mean, it, you know, here, here you go. Here's your first child. He's God, by the way. Good luck. So Mary is in a season. She's in a season in her life where there's a lot that she could be worrying about right now. But rather than worrying, what we find in this section of Scripture is the first response of Mary is worship. Rather than worrying, she's worshiping. So that's what we read in these verses. And I I just want to tell you, one of the one of the things I think, I'll just tell you right up front, the, the whole purpose of this message today, and maybe the whole topic of it is this, is that what we can learn from Mary is to replace worrying with worshiping. That's, you want to re, replace worrying in your life? The way to do it is to insert worship in its place. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
So it's okay. Look, it's okay to be concerned about your life. We know that, right? It's okay to make plans for your future and to think about those things. But Jesus says, do not worry about it. And then people wonder, well, if I shouldn't worry, then what should I do? Because, I mean, it's real easy to tell someone, don't worry, right? But then it's hard to actually live that. And so people are probably wondering, well, okay, it's real easy to say, don't worry, Jesus, but what should I do? Here's the answer, worship. Because you find yourself, when you worship, you take all of that energy that you, put, that you would spend into worrying, and you redirect it. You take your impulse, your initial impulse is to worry. Take that impulse and redirect it toward worship like Mary does and see what happens. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So rather than worrying, Mary here is worshiping. And so we need to take some time, I think, before we just read through this story, this, this song again, and, and think about what worship is. Like, what is worship? Well, here's the answer to that. Worship is what you were made to do. It's what we were all made to do. It's what we all do all the time. And many people don't understand it or realize that they're doing it, but they are. It simply is the way it is. You see, worship starts with God, with the God of the Bible, who is, by the way, I know I mention this a lot, but I just can't reinforce it enough. He is unlike every other God that's been made up by man, every other religion. God, in one of the ways he is unlike every other God, is, is one of the most difficult things to explain. He's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in perfect harmony and in perfect communion, sharing all of the divine attributes that God has. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they communicate with one another, they love one another, they honor one another, glorify one another, serve one another. It is a perfect community, absolutely perfect, one God existing in three persons. They worship, enjoy, celebrate one another continually. And the Bible says, that's the image we were made in. That's God. We are made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, and that means all of us are worshipers. We are unceasing worshipers. You are constantly worshiping. And what that means is we, we give ourselves. So we, what we do is whatever we give ourselves to, whatever it is you're giving your attention to, whatever you, however you live, whatever you're living in light of someone or something all the time. Now, we know from creation and this creation story that the way God created us, we're supposed to be worshipers of God. We're supposed to celebrate God and trust God and enjoy God and love God and serve God because God is good and He's good to us. That's the purpose of every single human being. So that's what it means to be a worshiper. Yes, it includes song, and we're going to even talk about a song here today. And, and we love to sing songs. And one of the things I love about songs is that they isolate our attention in a singular focus toward God. I love that about songs. But worship is so much bigger than that. It's what you're constantly doing. So that's worship. What about the opposite of worship? Well, the opposite of worship is idolatry. We keep worshiping, but we worship people or things that are not God. And that's also worship, but it's idol worship. It's amazing how if you think back to the Ten Commandments, we did a study in the Ten Commandments when we were in uh, uh, isolation and, and online only, and, if, and I, I mentioned back then that the first two commandments, there's one God and you worship Him alone. If you think about it, if you just keep those first two commandments, you won't break any of the other ones. You just don't. 
If you keep those first two commandments, there is one God, and you worship Him alone, you don't break the rest because what happens? Everything is an act of worship. You don't worship food and become a glutton. You don't worship sex and become a pervert. You don't worship money and become a thief. You don't worship your own anger or your own reputation and become someone who's a murderer. You see, worship changes how you live. So where you begin changes everything. How you begin changes. It's an incredibly practical thing what worship is. And we all have a tendency to put other things in the position of God. That's the problem. We're constantly, we're constantly, you know, back and forth worshiping. Yeah, we're worshiping God for a time, but then we replace him with something else that are never meant to be or do what God does. I mean, it seems like we, you know, there, it's easy to say things like, oh, you know, we put famous people in those positions and athletes. We're, th- those are our idols or sports teams or hobbies. But what about things that are closer to home, like hobbies, right? Or boyfriends or girlfriends or even husbands or wives or sons or daughters or grandkids or intellect or reputation or appearance or jobs or career. I mean, just all kinds of things. What we do, we put them in position of God. And what I mean by that is we live for these things. We find meaning in these things. We find our value in these things, our security and our significance in all of these things. It's worship. And that worship is in vain because idols always disappoint. Ultimately, they will always disappoint. Unlike God, they are not perfect. They're not selfless. They take. They don't give. God is a giving, loving, good God, and they are not. They don't endure forever, and that's why idolatry always ultimately leads to despair. And then Jesus comes to take away our sin and to reconcile us to God and to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we might worship the way we were created to truly worship, that we would worship by the Spirit, through the Son, Jesus, to the Father. And so the life of God is then connected to us. The life of this God who exists in three persons is connected and imparted to us so that we can worship him properly. And that means with all of our life, with our intellect, with our talent, with our work, with our time, with our treasure, with our voices, it just means that the way we live constantly is to God's glory and for others' good and for your joy. That's worship. That's it. That's God's intent for us, that we would be happy, joyful worshipers, because God is the happy, joyful worshiper. That's the example that we have. It's Him. And what we see in Mary is that's who she is. She's a happy worshiper, even in a circumstance that's not very happy. She has a lot to be worried about, but rather than worrying, she worships. And so what you hear in the Scripture is a language of worship. So, so, so you know, to be clear again, it's all of life, but this is a song, and I love it that it's a song. And so she begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what she's saying is deep down, deep down in my new heart that God has given me as his daughter, I want to magnify the Lord. We're all image bearers of God. That's that's who we are. That's how we're created, which means that we are created to reflect, to mirror, to to magnify the love and the truth and the, the compassion and the justice and the selflessness and the humility of God magnify the fact that God is a certain way and that connected to Him, we are reflecting, we're magnifying something throughout the earth. And she's saying that even though my life is uncertain, my soul 
my health, my reputation, my marriage, my family, my future. Nothing is certain, but in my soul, I just want God to be honored. I want God to be glorified, and I want others to see this in my uncertain life, that he is good, and he's good to me. This is the deepest desire of a truly Christian person, where the, where the Holy Spirit resides in the deepest part of your, your nature, of who you are. If you're really a Christian, this is what you want. You, may, you might be worried about certain things, but you want to just be worshiping through everything. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, this is an amazing thing I'm about to say. Mary lists in her song 17 attributes of God, at least, probably more. I probably have missed some. But if you look at this song, there are 17 attributes of God, 17 things about His character. I mean, how many of our worship songs today do that? list that many things. I mean, think about this. Mary is likely, remember who she is. She's very likely, possibly illiterate in that day. It would have been unusual for a woman of her age and her socioeconomic status to be formally educated in that rural town, Nazareth, where she grew up. It's most likely that the way she knows the scriptures is that she heard the scriptures read in synagogue on Sabbath, and she would just commit them to memory. And she's just choosing to live her life top down. Who, this is who, who is God? Okay, I'm going to live in light of that. This is who God is. That's how I'm going to live. And so when you hear and you, you, this reading of the song, these 17 attributes of God, you hear, the, you hear the echoes of the Old Testament scriptures. You'll hear echoes of Hannah's song in the Old Testament She's in the line of, of, you know, of Miriam and, and Hannah and Deborah. These are all women who worship God, and so it's just natural that Mary would as well. In this song, you hear echoes from First and Second Samuel, from Deuteronomy, from Job, the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. This is a theological teenage worshiper. That's who this is. She's amazing. She knows who God is, and she trusts the scriptures that she's been taught. And when she could be worrying, she just starts worshiping. So let's fly through those 17 things. Let's fly through them. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What's that mean? It means he's in charge. He's Lord. He's above all, over all kings, all kingdoms, Satan, demons, religions. Her God, our God, Yahweh, he is above all. Everyone and everything, that's when she begins by calling him Lord, that's what she's saying. And I think this is great comfort to her as she's looking at her life and her future, not knowing what's going to happen. What she begins with is, you know what? The Lord's in charge. I will magnify the Lord. That's who he is. Who God is changes who we are. And it culminates in how we live. It's really easy to just say, Jesus is Lord, when things are going great. But when things are difficult or when your future is uncertain, as it is here for her, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, maybe at that point it becomes, well, worry is Lord, or finances are Lord, or reputation is Lord, or my well-being is Lord, or comfort is Lord. And Mary just says, no, my God is Lord. Whatever he has, I'll receive it. What's the second thing? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. She says that God is her Savior. That's the second thing. Mary wasn't sinless. To help us fact check this, Mary notes in her song that she herself needs a Savior. 
So like Mary, we all need a Savior. So Savior means rescuer, deliverer, hero. In Scripture, God's you know, God is the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero all throughout Scripture because Scripture is the story of, of God coming into human history and his involvement in human history on a rescue mission. With him as the hero, he's the savior, he's the deliverer. And ultimately, Mary says that her savior will be her son, that Jesus will be born, he'll live without sin, that he'll die for her sin, and that he'll rise for her salvation, that her son will be her savior. Number three, she says God is what we'll call omniscient, which, which is what she means in saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He knows. He knows her. What she's saying is my God knows everything. My God knows me. He knows that I'm young. He knows that I'm poor. He knows that I'm, that I'm, I'm going to be a young, pregnant virgin girl. He knows that I don't have a lot of resources at my disposal. God knows that my reputation is likely going to be destroyed from this. God knows that my life is going to be really, really difficult and complicated because of this. God knows. This is where your view of God is so incredibly important. So important. I mean, some people say, again, when I hear all religions teach basically the same thing. No, they don't. No, they don't. You see, I mean, just name, I'll name, you know, pantheism or panantheism, just a vague spirituality. It seems to be the one that a lot of people cling to today. Just you define it yourself. God's not a person, but there is something out there. It's obvious he's a force. He doesn't necessarily pay attention to you because he's not personal, but there is this energy that just endows you. This, you know, but God, as he describes himself in the Bible, is not that. God, as he describes himself in the Bible, he's personal. He's alive. He's living. He's personal. He thinks. He speaks. He knows. He comes into your life. He knows you. Over and over and over in the Bible, we see that God knows his people. He knows every hair on your head and how many there are, how few there are. He knows you. He knows, he pays attention. He knows every single day of your life. God knows it all. He pays attention to your life. There are a lot of people out in this world, a lot of people, but God knows everyone by name. He pays attention to all the circumstances in your life that you're going through. That's what Mary is saying here. He knows the humble estate that I'm in. No one else pays attention to Mary. No one's paying attention to Mary. My goodness, she lives in Nazareth, not Jerusalem, not the big city. She's single, she's not married, she's young, she's not old, she's poor, she's not rich. What would make anyone pay attention to Mary? And what she says is, nonetheless, God knows me, God loves me, God pays attention to my life, God knows my needs, God knows right where I'm at. And listen, if you believe that, you'll sleep differently. Isn't it amazing that she begins her song, God is my Lord and He's my Savior, and she doesn't start with all her complaints against God. She could have, right? I mean, her prayer could have been, oh, God, you know the dress isn't going to fit. Boyfriend's kind of freaking out back home. Parents are wondering how to explain this to, to my grandma. You know, I mean, it's all going to be really awkward at synagogue with me having a baby without having a husband yet. Pretty young to have to handle this. This seems like a lot for me, God. I mean, we wouldn't blame her for praying like that, would we? But what she says is, 
He's the Lord. Whatever he wants, he's my Savior, and he'll get me through. Fourth thing, he's not only the Lord, Savior, and omniscient, but he's respectful. That's what I get from, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, it doesn't start that way for Mary, does it? It's amazing that she's able to have this perspective. I mean, for the next 30 years of her life, roughly, she's not going to be called blessed. In fact, she's going to be called whore and tramp and adulteress. But she has the, the long view of things. She doesn't have just a short, temporary view of things. And what that means is she doesn't hold up her reputation as an idol. She lets go of her reputation. And she says, you know what? I will be recognized as a blessed woman. I don't know when it's going to be, but I'll wait patiently for it. And so today, Mary, if you're listening, we recognize you as a blessed woman. You see, God is giving her dignity. And that's what God does. God is the one who gives dignity. For those who have been beaten, for those who have been molested, those who have been abused, if you've been cheated on, if you've been abandoned, if you've been betrayed, that means dignity has been stripped from you. And the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is a respectful God. And the one thing he does is he gives dignity back. That's what he does. So much so that he calls you a child, a son, and a daughter. And you're adopted into his divine family called the church. That's great dignity to be a child of this God. That's who he is. Let's move on. Number five, he's mighty. She says, he who is mighty. So she's saying he's powerful. It doesn't mean that everything goes perfect. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, I mean, it's, you know, he's powerful enough to, to change my circumstance. She believes that. doesn't mean that he's going to. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a winner every time. Just think happy thoughts, right? That, that's, what, that's not what power, what power is. But what it does mean is that no one or no thing can thwart God. Nothing can frustrate God. Nothing can surprise God. That's what it means that He is powerful. He's mighty. He is the one who can do great things. And if you believe that, you'll stop worrying and start worshiping. Number six, He's personal. I love this. She says, He has done great things for whom? What's the word? me. He's very personal. He's done great things for me. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. You see, if you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with worship, if you struggle with just celebrating who God is and what God has done, then one of the best things that you could do is pause every single day and recognize what He has done for you. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's one of the things, I, I picked up a few years ago this idea of journaling, right? And I would recommend it to all of you, which is writing things down, however you want to do it. I've got journal books everywhere, and, and those journals all have lists. And it's usually every, every you know, day, I, I, should, I, I would love to say that I do it every day. Probably, I would say, on a consistent basis, three times a week at least. So every week, there's at least one list of, uh, two or three lists of gratitude, things I'm thankful for, good things that God has done for me. And, and if you're struggling, like right now, if you're struggling with despair and discouragement and maybe even depression, let me recommend to you that one thing that is very, very helpful is just keeping a journal, whether it's typing or writing, whatever it is that you prefer to do. In that journal, in that journal, just put evidences of God's grace to you so that you, like Mary, can say, He has done good things for me. Your whole life can change just by 
seeking out and recording the evidences of God's grace so that you could say, He has done great things for me. He's personal, that He does them for you. That's what He wants to do. Number seven, God is holy. She says, holy is His name, which means God is not good and evil. He's only good. That's what holy means. He is altogether good. He doesn't do evil. He only does good. To be holy is just to be good, and that's it, period. That's who He is. And so, look, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're sinning, we can be tempted to hear these whispers in our ear, in our mind, telling us, hey, God's hurting you right now. And that's a lie. When you hear that, it's a lie. You can know and trust that's a lie because he is holy, which means he is only good. Satan's a liar, and that's all he speaks. God does great things. He gives good things, and that's what it means to say holy is his name. Holy is his name. You see, what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to run from God rather than to him. He wants you to worry rather than worship because he knows that worship is the answer to worry. So he'd rather you worry. Number eight, God is merciful. It says, she says, he, it extends from generation, his mercy extends from generation to generation. So you hook these two concepts together of mercy and generation to generation. It's really kind of an awesome thing. God is merciful, which means he withholds from us the justice that we deserve as sinners. He doesn't, he doesn't punish us the way we, we, we deserve. He replaces that with grace, giving us good things that we don't deserve. So that's mercy. And he does this not just for you, but from generation to generation. That's how merciful he is. He has withheld his justice from generation to generation. Let me ask you, how many of you, you're just done being merciful to certain people? You're absolutely sick of them. I get it. Hey, we can admit it, right? There are some people that like, look, I'm sick of you. I don't want to hear from you anymore. You know what? God isn't. That's what it means to be merciful. He'll be merciful to them their whole life and then to their kids and then their grandkids and their great-grandkids from generation to generation. Most of us can't endure a day with certain people. Mary says God's good for a thousand generations. Generation after generation, he's merciful. And so she worships him for being merciful. Number nine, she says God is worthy for those who fear him. What she's saying here when she says fear him, she means reverence and awe and respect, submission, obedience. This is what God deserves. So who else are you going to do that with? We're going to do it with something or someone. Who else are you going to trust? Who else will you rejoice in? Who else will you give that kind of respect to? What's going to be the center of your life and your identity? What's igniting your passion? Where is it coming from? Where is it going to? God is worthy, she says, to be the one that we worship in this way. Number 10, she says God is powerful. And she uses this analogy to describe his power. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He's, he's powerful. And it's not that God's going to, again, it's not that he'll do everything we want him to do. Just because we say he's powerful isn't saying that he's going to do everything we want him to do. But here's the thing. He can do whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. The psalmist says that God sits in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. So when you think of God, Think of him like this, as someone who is reaching down into history with that arm, and he's grabbing people and saving them, and he's defending them and protecting them and securing them and embracing them and cherishing them. And Mary says, my God is powerful enough to do this. And Jesus later says that he's strong enough that no one can snatch you out of his hand. God is powerful. And she says, God is sovereign. Number 11, 
This is beautiful. She says it in this way. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. <laughs> Read that again. Those are big words from a teenage girl in a rural town. Aren't they? I mean, I'll say it this way. She had no human rights. She had no civil rights. It's likely that she would not have been permitted to buy property her whole life or testify in court. So on the scale of value, as a young, unmarried teenage woman, especially a pregnant one, she would have been right above cattle or livestock. That's unfortunately the way things were. And also, by the way, she was under the rule of the throne of Caesar <laughs> in that day. And what she says is, in this word here, that God is sovereign, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones. She's basically saying, Caesar's not Lord, God is. And Caesar sits on a cute little throne, and a, you know, but above that, there's a much bigger throne, and my king rules over kings, and his kingdom is over all kingdoms, and he is the sovereign one, and he is the one that gives me dignity. My king rules over all. He's the one that gives me love. He's the one that gives me forgiveness. He gives me mercy. He has done great things for me. He knows the thoughts of people's hearts, and if they're proud, he takes them down, she says. If they're seated on thrones, ruling and reigning as bullies and thugs and abusers. God strikes them down with the strength of his hand and he defends people like me. He defends the widow and the weak and the poor and the oppressed. And this young woman that, like, like, like me in this rural town, I have a real king, she says. That's what she's saying in those words in this song. Those are big words from a teenage girl. Mary's confidence is not in Mary. Mary's confidence is not in the government. Mary's confidence is in Mary's God. Number 12, moving right along. Her God is gracious, exalted those of humble estate. What's she talking about there? All those who have been humiliated like me. She's facing a life of humiliation. And God is gracious. He's exalted those of humble estate. He, she knows he will take her in her humiliation and raise her up and bless her. That's who God is. It's wonderful. She doesn't know what's going to happen, but she knows that God is able to change everything. Number 13, her God is generous. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So here again, she's saying her God is one who gives. He doesn't take. He's very generous. And I, we, one of the things we've got to believe in is this, this, this truth of the generosity of God. I mean, he gave us himself. That's as much as you could possibly give in Jesus Christ. But Jesus' brother James, in his book in the Bible, he says that every good, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And what that means is that God is generous. He, one of the ways that he is generous is that he feeds the hungry, she says. And he does that through his people, through the church. And that's something that is why we, you know, as, as Oasis Church, one of the things that we always try to do is just challenge and encourage one another, especially in the climate that we're living in today, 
to do and live this way on a constant basis. You notice we don't have a lot of programmatic things, and I'm not so sure that Feeding the Hungry is a program where we get to be able to say, look how good we are as a church, even though I'm not against those things. Do those things. As program. We need programs like that, but if that's who you are and you're living that way on a constant basis and you see those in need and you help and you just be the church wherever you are all the time, it multiplies the effect when it's done in that way. And we want to be generous because God is generous, and as he works through us to be generous to others. That's what it means to be a worshiper and to have that worship reflect, magnify who God is in your life. You reflect the generosity of God, not so that we get glory, but so that God gets glory. That's what it means to be a steward, the Bible says, that we would be good stewards, good managers of everything that God has given us. It doesn't belong to us. God is allowing us to just steward it, to hold on to it, and to use it for the benefit of the kingdom. And she says that the rich he has sent away empty. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty, which is just simply, whenever you see the word, you know, somebody talking about the rich in Scripture, it's often uh, meaning the greedy. It's ta- it, you know, th- you know, those people who, who love money, who use people and love money. That's when they say the rich, that's typically what they're referring to. It's not that they love people and use money. You can have a lot of money and be very wealthy and, and, and not be considered among the rich, the way it's described in the Bible, and not being considered among the greedy, all right? So let's move on. 14th point, God is just. And I really love that. I really love, you know, Mary just says, look, I, I, you know, herself being poor, being a single mother, living in a small town, I think she's just really glad to know that God loves her and God's going to take care of her. And she's, she's saying this. And, and so what, what it says here in the last line of her song there's a whole bunch of things that she says here, and, I, wanna, and I, wa- I think the easiest way for us to understand it is this way, that in light of the words that we're about to, I'm just going to read them, the best way that you can respond to this is learn to replace anxiety with history. Replace worry with worship, but replace anxiety with history. What I say that is listen to what she says. She kind of concludes her prayer, her song, with saying, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham many years ago, and to His offspring forever. And then it says Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, for about three months and then returned to her home. And so in this final word, Mary says three more things about God. Number 15, he's humble. He helps. God helps. So she looks at her life, and she has two options for her life. Anxiety, what's going to happen? That's one option. Or two, history. What has God done? And she can lean on what God has done, the facts of what God has done. In moments of crisis and doubt, if you lean on anxiety, you'll terrify yourself about your future. And sometimes it's really easy, I think, to read Scripture or to read biographies or read about people like this and say, yeah, God's been really good to you, but, but I kind of freak out right now today. And 20, that 2020 is a lot different than the way it was then. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. It's the same God. It's the same God. He's good to them. He's good to you. He's faithful to them. He's faithful to you. Replace anxiety with history and worship through it. Number 16, God is faithful. 
and he is. She says, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's saying he's totally faithful. He's faithful to, to carry out his plan. He's going to always be faithful. He does certain things. He does those things. He's a faithful God. And then number 17, God is eternal. And the way she says it, I love it. Some of us would even ask, okay, when does the goodness of God expire? Is there a time when God's goodness expires? And Mary says at the end of her song, how long does this go on? What's the word? Forever. Our God is good forever. So what is God according to this song? According to this song, He is Lord, Savior, all-knowing, respectful, mighty, personal, holy, merciful, worthy, powerful, sovereign, gracious, generous, just, humble, faithful, forever. Forever. Mary says, that's my God. And what does she do? She sings, because song is meant to be used as a means of enjoying and honoring and recognizing and proclaiming God. Human beings were made to sing. We were made to sing. You know what? In Genesis, the very first recorded song was Adam. Before sin enters the world, Adam sings about his wife. He wrote the first love song ever. Look it up. He sings about his wife and his marriage in the presence of God. It's worship. It's a beautiful thing. And yes, worship is more than singing, as we've discussed today, but it most assuredly does include singing. And Revelation says in the end, we'll sing new songs to God. And so what we're going to do is right now, like Mary, we're going to lift our voices in song as an act of worship to this God who we just began to touch the surface of his attributes today. Just began. We, can, can't, we can't describe him properly. We tried, and we still failed today. <laughs> Why don't we pray? And then we sing. And as we sing, I invite you to, at any moment, come and take worship. Uh, take worship. Take communion, which is, a, which is an act of worship. My thoughts got ahead of my words there. And uh, at any moment during this, this song, as we sing of God's holiness, that He is good, um, you may just, when you're ready, go. Well, God, I pray for us that as a people, we would grow in worship throughout all of our lives with things like we talked about today, things like justice and generosity and, and, and in our gatherings as we sing, and even in our personal lives as we sing worship. May we sing out of our hearts like Mary did. May we sing by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit as Mary recognized that you're powerful and may we sing because Jesus is our Savior, like Mary proclaimed. May we sing because it's what we do to prepare ourselves for eternity, forever, and ultimately, God, because you're just absolutely worthy of it, and you're good, and you're a giving God, and you're Lord, and you are sitting on a throne, and yet you are very personal here. We want to, by grace, just come to know you even greater as we worship you. For you are good, and we worship and sing in your good name, Jesus. Amen.